Every time you go in for a negotiation, if they're rejecting the price you're giving them, they're rejecting the business, they're not rejecting you. Mm -hmm. Even if it is a service you are selling, it is the business they are rejecting, not you. And I think that that keeps people from asking. I think that's what gets people tongue-tied. I mean, we've all seen it firsthand. So that I think is really, that's where people fall short time and time again. Welcome to One Next Step, the most practical business podcast in the world, helping you get more done, grow your business, and lead your team with confidence with tips and tools you didn't get in business school. Here are your hosts, Trisha Shortino and Lisa Zeveld. Welcome to One Next Step, the practical business podcast that helps you run your business so it stops running you. I'm Trisha. And I'm LZ. Today's topic is something we can all benefit from, and that's learning how to become better, more persuasive communicators. Whether you're someone's personal assistant or the CEO of a multi-million dollar company, the way you talk to people and convey your message is incredibly important. Joining us today about this topic is one of the best communicators in the country, Lydia Fennett. Lydia is the Global Managing Director and Lead Benefit Auctioneer at Christie's in New York City. She's also a gifted speaker and the author of the widely acclaimed book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. We are so excited to have her on the podcast to talk about really finding our voices as communicators, owning our power, as she puts it, and being confident and persuasive whether we're giving a keynote to thousands of people or making a sales pitch in a boardroom. We've got so much to cover, so let's get started. Welcome to The One Next Step, Lydia. It is a honor to have you on the podcast with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I can't wait for this conversation. But before we dive into the amazing conversation we're about to have that I can't wait for, um, I have a fun question to ask you. The question is, what is your most used emoji? Do you use emojis? I do use emojis, although I feel like my daughter uses them in a better way. But my favorite <laughs> emoji, which is not always my most used, but my favorite favorite emoji is the dancing emoji. I love the salsa dancer who looks like she's running. I think it really is evocative of everything. It can be really put into anything. You're trying to cheer someone up. They should be dancing. You're excited to do something. You could be dancing. So <laughs> I really feel like that emoji. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. That is not maybe the answer I thought you were going to say. See, that's why we <laughs> ask these fun questions. I don't know. Like the kissy face. Like I'm like the queen of the kiss face or the like the one eye snarky lady. You know, like this lady. <laughs> I've never yes. used that one in my life. That's, I, really, oh, I use that like. LZ knows. Yes. Lisa knows. I sent it to her at least once a day. She gets one of these. Know what I mean? <laughs> Mine is the winky with the tongue sticking out, though. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe that means we're really snarky. T. Like now I'm worried. Lydia is sending yeah. dancing ones, and we're I know like I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to expand positivity over here. Just yeah, let's expand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the heart. I use the heart a lot too. So yeah. it's a weird dichotomy. It's the heart and the snarky one. Hmm. Yeah. I yeah, but teenagers have it the best. They're super smart. Oh, yeah. The hand that goes up, the sort of like fingers pointing up. For me, that's like, here we go. So if yeah. things are going well, you'll get about 60 of those from me, which is Like raise the roof. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Again, it can be used if you're sad, if you're happy, really. It can be used anytime. 
Uh, I love yes. it. I love it. I'm going to put those on rotation now. Thank yes. you for broadening my <laughs> emoji horizon. <laughs> and now the podcast is over. <laughs> yes. Hey, it's we are we the most practical business podcast. So there you go. They got a practical tip today. New emojis to add into the rotation. So no, no. Well, thank you again for being here. As I said before, we started recording here that I'm a huge fan, uh, kind of stumbled upon you through Instagram and have just loved reading your book and kind of enjoying watching from afar everything that happens in New York and beyond and all the work that you do over at Christie's. So, but that's a great, you know, kind of beginning to the, the podcast. Like how in the world did you get into Christie's and this crazy world of being the premier auctioneer for them? Well, I had never heard of Christie's when I was growing up. So I always like to start this story by telling that small fact, because I think a lot yeah. of people think, oh, the art world, you know, you were a collector, your parents were collectors. Right. So let me disavow you of any notion that that was the case. I had never heard of Christie's. I did not know anything about the auction world. And when I was in college, I read an article in Vanity Fair magazine about a charity auction with Princess Diana's dresses. And it's mm. funny because even if people don't really know anything about the auction world, many people will remember that auction because it was mm -hmm. sort of every amazing dress she'd worn over the course of her marriage to Prince Charles. And this was sort of her moment to let everything go. So there were these incredible parallels with her life. But all I remember from the storyline was that the entire auction took place, was set in New York City at this place called Christie's. And the article went into granular detail about the people who worked for Christie's and this glamorous auction room where everyone was in black tie and the women were wearing pearls and Hermes scarves. And that it sort of went into detail about how they traveled. And I swear everything in my body was just sort of like, well, that's it. That's the place that I will work. And again, I wasn't even an art history major at that point, but <laughs> it really motivated me to dig into my studies. I declared a second major in art history my junior year. And I talked about Christie's to every single person I had ever met. Uh, most of them yeah. gave me a blank stare. And it wasn't until almost a year later that I started talking. I'd been telling my father about it. who's an incredible networker. And he met someone who worked for Christie's. She was a woman who just started as an assistant. She was, I think, 23 or 24 years old. And okay. he he basically introduced us. And then I got the card for the internship coordinator and essentially stalked her until she let me have an internship that following yeah. <laughs> Wow. That's amazing. That is I love divine. that story. Yes. Yeah. So divine. <laughs> it did. And yeah. you know, I've been with the company now for 21 years, which is really hard to believe because it is passed in such a, I mean, obviously I'd say it's passed in a flash. There have been many long days and long nights and a lot of work, but mm -hmm. it's just such a dynamic world. And it's so changing always that no two days are really ever the same, which is what I love so much about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, um, Interesting. Um, another one of my favorite authors and somebody who I kind of hold um, equally up on a pedestal is Bob Goff. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever read um, his first book, he actually has a similar story where he wanted to get into law school and they told him no. And when I re was reading your book, I thought about how you kept calling mm -hmm. and calling and were relentless to say, no, you need to hire me as your intern. Mm -hmm. And you came up with creative ways even for them to do so. And I just thought I love the tenacity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is such a great example, not only for, you know, young women who are entering the career force, but pretty much every single person alive is if you want something bad enough, don't take no for an answer. Yeah. And not only don't take no for an answer, but 
often you have to think about why the other person is telling you no. You know, it's the other yes. side of the equation. It's, it's something that I talk about a lot in sales training where, you know, if you're going into a meeting and you're selling something, the first thing you should be doing is listening to the person across the table because they're giving you all the information you need. So a lot of times what you're selling is really irrelevant. It's how you're selling what they need. So you have to think about whatever service or product that you have will help them meet their goals and meet their expectations. And so, you know, when I, when I, tell this internship story of stalking this poor woman. And again, I always like to say, you know, I know that I probably appear to be in my early 20s to everyone who is watching this right now. <laughs> Just so you guys know. And it's really funny because there was no caller ID when I was 21 years old, mm. which or 20 Oh, old. so you really could do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and I did it. I did it. And she yeah. picked up for Mary Libby, picked up every single time. And I was asking <laughs> the same question. I know. I was asking the same question every time, which was why can't I have this internship? Which wasn't yeah. really the question. The question was why is the internship, why is it capped? Is there a reason? Right. right? So if you ask right. the question differently, and in that case it was capped because of the number of people who could go on the museum tours in the afternoon. But to me, that seemed like an opportunity because if all the interns were leaving every afternoon. What about one intern who could just stay and do the work? Because obviously right. if you work in a team, mm -hmm. you don't want to lose your intern every afternoon unless you know they're not great. Right. Yeah. Have a great time at the museum. But for mm -hmm. most people, having an extra set of hands is always something they're going to want. And that was really what I saw as my entry. And that's kind of how it started. You know, I just asked that question differently. I did a quote unquote modified internship and I ended up going to the museums, I think every single time except for once, because of course oh, wow. with college interns, you just I never know. That. <laughs> yes. Well, I talk a lot about turning turning a no into a yes, right? It, it may take work, tenacity, mm -hmm. and really getting to the root cause, like you said, but I love that you were able to turn a no into a yes. And I think that a lot of people stumble there. I think that a lot of people really struggle with accepting a no for what a no is and then just saying, okay, well, I guess that's not for me and I'm going to go try this other thing or move along. But I think that um, you're living proof for a lot of us out there that no sometimes just means not now or not today or not in this way, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. So Absolutely. I love what it is. And I think rejection yeah. is the thing that stops us all in our tracks. You know, we've already played out that scenario where someone has said no. And so when someone says no, we assume that's the final answer. But if you aren't really afraid of rejection and if you've gotten over the fear of asking, then all of a sudden you're emboldened to keep asking in different ways. And so I think getting over that takes a lot of confidence. But once you're over that hump, I think you find that a lot more yeses come your way for sure. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, so I love how you, you kind of talked about this tying into sales for a salesperson who's kind of really feeling the rejection of a no. Um, and we kind of stumbled upon, upon a video that you had done talking about five selling tips. And I'd love if you could kind of walk our listeners through how this conceptual, how this conceptually really works out when it comes to things like selling inside of a business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I talk about the first the first point that I always go back to, which is to listen. It's, mm -hmm. in my opinion, the biggest issue that people run into. And we've all met that salesperson who gives you information out of a fire hose. And you can't even tell them what you're asking because the information is coming so quickly that there's no time for you to even formulate your thoughts and get back to them. So you've already, you've already checked that box of no before they've even finished their sales pitch. So first and foremost, listen. But I think as we go into almost that sort of rejection piece that I was talking about, one of the easiest ways to be comfortable and to be a good salesperson is to get comfortable in your skin, or as I like to say, sell as yourself. And so that really comes with finding your own voice and your own language in which to sell. 
So if you're selling something, not to pretend like you're doing it because you saw someone else do it. I use the example in my book of I trained under auctioneers who were older British gentlemen, and they were all 20 years older than me. And I was 24 when I became an auctioneer. And so for me, the only thing I had ever seen was an auctioneer who took charity auctions, which inherently are taking place late at night at dinner parties and galas all over New York City, where a lot of people have been drinking and they're having fun versus an art auction, which is a very serious affair where people are seated to buy art. Mm -hmm. And so I would get on stage at those charity auctions and do everything that I'd been taught to do at the art auctions, when in fact, it was a completely different style Mm -hmm. that needed to really envelop or develop over time. And that was really for me that moment when I got up on stage and realized that I had to take these auctions as a 20 something year old woman, not a 45 year old man from England, because there was something interesting and dynamic about that too. It wasn't better or worse. It was just different and different Mm -hmm. isn't bad. So sell authentically. And I always say that the easiest way to do that is to start with the strike method. You know, I opened my book talking about getting on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people at these charity auctions and I'm standing backstage in that pitch black and I walk out onto the stage and I always have a gavel and I slam the gavel down three times. So I make this sort of Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Finette. I'm here from Christie's Auction House. And then I throw in a joke. And why I do that is because I always have nerves, just like everyone else, even though I've taken thousands of auctions over the course of my career, I have nerves when I stand backstage. And those nerves need somewhere to go. And so the strike method for me is really funneling that nervous energy into emotion or a mantra or something that helps you get laser focused. So when you walk into a big presentation, even if it's for two people, you don't walk in with your voice shaking. You walk in and you feel confident in what you're about to say because you've sort of taken away that fear and put it into something else and you're allowed to move through it. So think about what your strike method is and make sure that it's lined up. And then after that, I always say, if you're a nervous speaker, line up two or three sentences afterwards because the best part about speaking is the minute you start speaking, the nerves start to go away. Mm-hmm. So it's like a car crash, right? You hit that wall and then the nerves start to dissipate. So you want to make sure that you are ready to go. You have those two sentences lined up and you're already in it and the nerves are starting to go away. Okay. So that would be my third point. You are what you negotiate is another chapter in my book. I feel like I'm really walking you all through my book. So if you haven't, must <laughs> you buy it. Yeah, this is like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's happening. Um, it's called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. It looks great on a bookshelf. So yeah, my, fourth, my fourth point would be to say you are what you negotiate. So remember this in sales. Remember this, whether you're selling yourself as a service. Remember this is you're selling a product. No one will ever sell something that you made or created the way that you will. So you need to negotiate for what you are worth. And this comes down to salary negotiations. You know, I I often say if I'm doing something sort of in a side hustle or side business, people will say to me all the time, well, how do you price yourself? I keep raising the price until someone says no. And then Mm -hmm. I do the service and then I ask for more. There's no shame in asking for money. So don't ever forget that. And I really mean that because so many women spend their lives thinking, oh, maybe I should ask for a 5% raise, ask for 50%. Maybe you'll get 6%. You never know. The point is you ask and don't be afraid of the answer. No, because as we talked about the fifth point, Mm -hmm. don't be scared of rejection. And that for me, is really what sums it all up. Because if you're not scared of rejection, you won't be scared of sales. And that is when you become a really good salesperson. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's so often what happens, you know, the majority of our listeners here are small to medium sized business owners. And so a lot of times what that means is that they're probably going to be a solopreneur. And if they're not a solopreneur, they're probably still selling quite a bit of the business, right? <laughs> because it's like them and some admin staff and maybe some marketing. So when it comes to selling or when it comes to communicating and, and kind of those five things you just spoke about, where do you feel like people stumble the most? Like where do you, where is that communication failing on that other side of things? I think that people always stumble over the money. I mean, I've seen it. I'm sure if anyone has ever been in a meeting where they have to ask, you see, especially with women, and I have all female teams, so I know what this looks like real time, but it's incredible to watch how people can't get, they can't get money out of Mm -hmm. their mouth. I, they can't price something. They can't ask for something. Mm -hmm. And I always say to people, like if the only tip you take away from what I say today is to remember that money is not personal, Mm -hmm. look at money as business and your emotions are personal they're actually not correlated at all. So every time you go in for a negotiation, if they're rejecting the price you're giving them, they're rejecting the business, they're not rejecting you. Even if it is a service you are selling, it is the business they are rejecting, not you. And I think that that keeps people from asking. I think that's what gets people tongue-tied. I mean, we've all seen it firsthand. So that I think is really, that's where people fall short time and time again. Yeah. Especially women, you notice they come in there and go, well, you know, I don't, is it okay? I'm thinking that, you know, for my annual raise, could I maybe have, I mean, their body language changes. Mm -hmm. They start adding in a lot of words that are not um, very direct. They're Mm -hmm. kind of more passive words. Like I think, or maybe Mm -hmm. I should, instead Mm -hmm. of coming right out, I'm in the business of money. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable talking about it. And that's what I always try to tell my team is like, it's just dollars. It's just numbers on a piece of paper, right? Like Mm -hmm. take the emotion out of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's hard. I mean, I don't want to say that it's the easiest thing that any of us will ever do, but you got to, you got to get your, you got to get that sort of fist in your stomach and just hold tight and put the words in your own mouth. Because honestly, there's nothing better than getting paid and feeling like you're being paid what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, there really isn't. Like every, every raise I've ever yeah, negotiated. Amen. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. every I've ever negotiated. I'm giving before. the emoji that does this right yeah, now. Exactly. <laughs> I'm doing the hands up. I'm doing the dancing hands up emoji it's silently in the yeah. background. I mean, to, get, to get paid what you feel like you're mm-hmm. worth, there is just nothing better because yeah. you become a happier employee. You feel like whatever you created is worth what you think it's worth. And there's just no better feeling. So, and, and you know, money's power at the end of the day. And that's the other yes. element that we all forget. Yeah. If you have money, it empowers you to do whatever you want with it, to live the life you want. You know, I think women are so amazing at giving money away when they have a lot of it, which is such an incredible part of being able to reach a point in your life where you can actually give money away. I mean, what a, what a goal for us all to set. Um, But it also allows you to control your destiny because you're not looking around for someone else to create your dreams for you. Yeah. I love that. Well, what do you think holds people back from finding their voice? Whether it's personally, if it's, if it's related to their career, to their personal life or to talking about money, um, what do you feel is, is really holding people back from really finding that voice? I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with society where we, where we are raised. I mean, look, I grew up in the South. My mom is British. I always say that neither of these cultures are very sort of like, go out and get what you want, or they weren't when I was growing up, certainly. Um, I think we're finding our way. You know, I, I do think that that has a lot to do with it. And I think there's a lot of 
again, less now, but when I first started, I mean, there were definitely people who said to me on more than one occasion, if I would say anything about even, you know, maybe I could get, I don't know, like a 1% raise this year. And people would say, oh, there's so many women who would do your job for less, which mm-hmm. is true, by the way. I mean, I work for a place yeah. where there used to be a lot of people who received jobs because their parents were collectors or they had those ends. Mm-hmm. That was not my story. So how incredibly frustrating from the age of 21 until really about 28 or 29 to be treated like a, a young child who was sort of patted on the head and said, you know, mm, yeah. you just wait your turn. You're speaking out of turn here. And I had so many friends who said to me over the course of their career, people have said to them things like, you're just lucky to have a job. Yeah, but I'm still doing the same job that everybody else is doing. They're just getting paid. I also have two brothers who, when I tell them this laugh so far, they're like, have I ever heard my brothers? And no one has ever said to them like, oh, lucky you for, you get to work for the the glory of your job. They're like, that's not actually a thing. You realize that? Yes. You you are, you are hitting a pet peeve of mine right now. Like this, I am like personally feel so convicted about what you talk about right (laughs) now as a, as a woman's, uh, you know, CEO of an organization that's striving and growing and out there, like everything you're saying just rings so true. Yeah. And you get these interesting sort of side currents too, where, you don't really realize it. I mean, I remember being at a dinner party once with a large group of people and there was a husband and a wife and the wife was a stay-at-home mom. And the husband said something along the lines of, they were talking about insurance, life insurance. And the husband said, well, why would, why would we get life insurance when you don't have a job? And oh my I just, to me, that was the epitome of we do not value women in the same way. Like Mm -hmm. stay-at-home moms, to me, that is an incredibly difficult job. It is something that a lot of people juggle just on a daily basis. If they are working, they're doing both of those jobs as well. As we know, women usually pick up the sort of back end of that as well, as we saw in the pandemic. So I just think, again, there is a lot of language that's used without anyone even realizing it. Like the guy who said it is not a bad guy. I think he genuinely was like, why Mm -hmm. should we get insurance on you? You don't have a job. Whereas she's like, yes, but I the person who literally takes care of our children every hour of every day. And that is a job too. The the fact that that was even a conversation taking place. So I think a lot of these things happen and I really try with my own children and my husband and I have sort of an open dialogue about what our partnership looks like and how those different parts of our jobs and parts of our lives need to intersect for us to both be successful and feel supported. And I think that that's a really important thing that we can do as women who are raising children to have those conversations with them now. So they see that and they mirror what they see even in their own home. Yeah. Raising a son and a daughter, I have to agree with that. It's what they see. And I stayed home for many years. I, I yeah. you know, had a small stint of retirement and then came back to work for Belay. Um, but absolutely, we have a responsibility as parents right now, men and women, to really set in motion how our future generations are uh, respected, taken care of, and heard. Absolutely, every level. I mean, we have children, so we all know. Ultimately, you Mm -hmm. hear what you say coming out of their mouths for better or for worse. Um, yeah. So keep it clean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, but definitely, I think that that's, that's something that I think about on a daily basis. Like, what can I, what can I show them as a mom, as a woman, as mm-hmm. a citizen of this world, so that they will grow up understanding things that I did not and pass mm-hmm. them forward.
Well, being um, an effective communicator seems to come so naturally for you, right? And I'm thinking through your story because I, I have read your book, but I can't remember if in the book, if you talk about sort of that moment when you just sort of receive that confidence, were you just born with the confidence to feel like you could go into any room or to not get frustrated when at 24, someone said, oh, sweetheart, you know, do your time here, wait until you get a little bit older, like that you just kind of had that confidence to rest in the space that you were in, knowing that your time was coming or thinking through how, you know, you have to handle perhaps a, you know, a charity auction where the crowd isn't really paying attention to you and you have to kind of get their attention and know it's not like, what kind of advice could you give to somebody that really hasn't found maybe their quote unquote voice yet or really found how to become that effective communicator because they don't feel like they can? Yeah. You know, honestly, the reason I wrote this book was because every time I was backstage before an auction or I was seated at a table, like at the dinner, right before I would get up to go backstage, or frankly, even when I got off stage, there was always a person and it was almost, I'd say 95% of the time, a woman who would say something like, I could never do what you do. I hate selling. I'm so bad at selling. I could never ask anyone for anything. And I just remember thinking, you know, as I said earlier, I'm Southern and British. Like I did not grow up in cultures where people mm -hmm. were taught to ask for things at all. You know, and I right. went into a company that was full, the, the entire top of the company was men for the first really 15 years that I worked there. So how did that all come about? And I realized a lot of it came from charity auctioneering from putting myself out there so many times in situations that were going, you know, people are talking and I'm standing on stage and no one's paying attention. And I'm just like, help. <laughs> um, <laughs> to navigate that and figure out what my voice looked like. And then I realized that that voice kind of spilled over into my career. You know, and I would be sitting in a meeting where the charity auction, 10 years after I started being an auctioneer, listening to people tell me, what an auction was supposed to look like when in fact this was their first year as a committee and this was my thousandth auction. And it's somewhere in between, I would say probably like my early to mid thirties that I sat on a call once with an, with an auction committee and they said, well, we're, you know, we're going to put the auction after dessert. And as the auctioneer, it's literally your worst nightmare because everybody leaves. I mean, if you imagine everyone's out drinking, they're having so much fun and they have a big heavy meal and then dessert comes down and everyone's looking at their watch because it's the middle of the week and they want to get home. Mm -hmm. And so I was sitting there thinking like, this is going to be a disaster. And I'm the person who has to stand on stage and watch it be a disaster. Like I stand there right. and leaving, <laughs> you know, it's like Bon Jovi plays and then they bring out the auctioneer and it's Lydia and the crowd of empty chairs. <laughs> so, um, so I said to the crowd, you know, I mean, to the group of people, I said, you know, I just want to jump in here really quickly because I think if we were to move the auction earlier, it might be more effective. And I have this crowd of people sort of, well, and then I said, you know, I'll be honest, I've done this enough that I understand what it's like to take an auction at the end and it doesn't go well. So if you would like to find another auctioneer, you're welcome to do that. But if you would like for me to take it, then the auction will need to go earlier in the evening. And wow. that was it for me because you know what they said? Okay. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've had that intel for the first nine, 999 yeah. auctions, but it was the only the thousandth that I choose to use it. And all yeah. of a sudden the auctions were so much more fun because they were early when people had had a cocktail or two and no dinner. So they were super buzzed mm -hmm. and happy to spend money <laughs> um, instead of tired and slinking out of the back door. So I think mm -hmm. that things like that were, you know, pushing through the ick. I always say it's like pushing through that stomach where you're like, oh God, I don't want to say mm -hmm. that. And then realizing on the other side, there is 
a reward, I would just encourage anyone who doesn't feel that yet to start pushing into that, com- that out of comfort zone, which is so important and really growing. Yeah, because I think we have to advocate for ourselves. Nobody else is going to do it for us. And as women, we have been, you know, society tells us, to your point, we should not. We should be secondary or we should be quiet. (laughs) And so even personally, very early on, um, I was very convicted that somehow, some way, my voice mattered somewhere. And I I, I felt like I I could not sit quiet and I was not going to go through life being quiet, and that I had value to add that that was equal to any man that would add any value anywhere. And so that's like, for me, how I've even worked through my career is just believing there is a better way and there's room for everybody. And just because my gender is different doesn't mean the value I add is different. And so I, it's, it's like you said, the more you do it, the more emboldened you are to continue to yeah. do it. I'm like, oh, that wasn't so bad. It worked out yeah. in my favor. I'm going to do it again. And then or you walk out and you're like, ooh, I could have gone either way. The next time I'll just try one more time. Yeah, it creates this momentum in your life where you feel confident being able to do it whenever it feels necessary. Yes, absolutely. Which goes into kind of a quote, you you know, this idea that you talk about of owning your power. Mm. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about what that really means. I know our listeners would love to hear about it as well. I mean, owning your power for me is just living the life you want to live, you know, creating your own reality and creating your own narrative. You know, I don't know if you have people in your life like this, but I certainly know people who any opportunity they have, they'll put a negative spin on something. You know, I could be in the same situation. And to me, I would see it as a learning experience to them. It's cratered their year, you know? And so I think that owning your power is really stepping into this belief that it's your life. You're responsible for what you want to do with it. So own it. Don't let someone else tell you what's going to work and what's not going to work. Don't let someone else take every opportunity and make you feel like a victim go after what you want. And you don't have to be ugly about it. It doesn't have to be aggressive and horrible. Like there's a very feminine way to do it. It's where I always pull on my Southern roots. It's the reason my book is hot pink. I'm like, there is power in femininity. You know, there is power in being who you want to be. And that can be, as I said, for being on stage, like I'm in a bright red dress with huge heels. My male counterparts are in black tie. We are both powerful in our own way. So find your power and own it. And then go after what you want and don't look back. Yeah. Such a great mantra. I love it. To that point, I always tell people that you only get so long to complain about something and then you have to change it. Like, don't sit there and wallow in misery. Like, okay, you're done. I'm done listening to you. Move on. (laughs) Like, either stop complaining or change it. (laughs) Yeah. I also, and I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about this, but I often find that you know, the person, and and I find with women, there can be a lot of jealousy, as we all know, you know, I think Mm -hmm. this goes across, someone's doing very well, someone's very successful, there can be a lot of jealousy. And I've, I've said to many people over the course of my career, and even coaching people, you know, when people are jealous of you, the easiest way to get that to go away is to reach out to them, and to Mm -hmm. offer help. Because the interesting thing is, a lot of times, if someone is jealous of you, even if you go to them with every tool in your toolkit, they're still not going to do it right? But at least you've given them the opportunity. And if they do it, you should be their biggest fan cheering them along because getting them out of that rut is going to make them not jealous of you, but a loyal supporter and friend for the rest of your life. And so I talk a lot about that in the last chapter of my book, you know, it's really about 
all doing this together and making sure that, and not just women, I mean, men too. Like if you see someone struggling, realize that if you have found your power and you are owning your power, it is incumbent on you to reach out and help other people too. Cause that's part of it. And honestly, I think that's the best part of it because there's nothing better than helping someone for no reason. And then watching them succeed when it has absolutely nothing to do with you. And you can just look over and be like, that person's living in their dream now. Right. Yes. A hundred percent. Well, I'm going to kind of go a little bit off the rails here as we conclude. And one of my favorite stories in your book, and I think that this speaks volumes to how you can own your power, regardless of who was in the room with you, is you have one story that I found particularly funny. I believe it was the actor um, Matt Damon. Yes. Am I correct? Okay. Yes. Could you, (laughs) yes. Could you just share a little bit of that? Because I think that's a great way for us to end today and just help motivate people that, you know, even in the midst of maybe a big star that you can hold your own. My dad has a a phrase that he's used his my entire life called um, everyone puts their boots on the same way. I'm sure you guys have heard it. It's not proprietary to my father, but he does. (laughs) And he's he's like this with everyone. He doesn't care who anyone is. I remember being in a restaurant in New York city and a guy walked by and he's like, Hey, Steve. And we're all having, this is, you know, pre-theater and Broadway. We're all having dinner. And I look up and it's Steve Martin. And I was like, Oh my, you know, or typical 20 year old. Oh God, dad, please stop. Like, please stop. He's like, yeah. doesn't even hesitate. He's like, what? I, I watch all of his movies. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, dad. So I guess that that's always really been part of, of, it's been in the back of my head, even though I didn't really believe it. But again, when I get on a charity auction stage, there's sort of this different persona that comes on Mm -hmm. that, especially in my early thirties, you know, it was really starting to come on. And so there was a school in Manhattan where Matt Damon's kids were at school and he had agreed to not only be there for the actual school auction that night, but to come on stage at the end. So during a charity auction, you usually have live auction lots where you're selling physical things. And then you have a paddle raise, which is basically just, you're asking for money for the school or for the nonprofit or whatever it is for financial aid or whatever you're supporting. And so that evening, you know, they sort of said to me, like, my, Matt Damon's going to be here. And he said he would come up on stage with you for the paddle raise. And I said, okay. So, you know, I, I arrive and the event organizer rushes me over and he's super nice. He's just like, hi, it's nice to meet you. But you can tell, obviously he meets a billion people. So fine. My name is Lydia, sure. by the way, for everyone, so that you understand what the story is. Lydia. <laughs> so I get on stage and I start the auction and I'm halfway through the auction and there's this one lot that was this amazing, I think it was a dinner party and the bidding had just gone completely out of control. And it was basically two groups, two different grades of parents. And Matt and his friends were sitting at one and then there was another table and they were going back and forth and back and forth. And we reached this price that was way too much. But again, this is donating for financial aid for the school. So I'm just egging it on because it's all for a good cause. And we get to this point where at any regular auction, when I'm taking a charity auction, there's always a place where every once in a while, someone will say, listen, we can do two. So I get it up to the highest point. Let's say I get it up to $10,000 or whatever it might be. And I hit that point. And then I can say to the audience, great news. I have a second one to sell. Now we've just made $20,000. So it's a bit, the donation is usually happens beforehand. Obviously Matt has been to a lot of auctions over the course of his life because he started yelling out, Hey, Lindsay, Lindsay, (laughs) double the lot the crowd is quiet. So obviously he's talking to me. And again, I will go back to what I said right before I started this. My name is actually Lydia. So (laughs) I look down at Jason Bourne and I'm sitting there (laughs) thinking to myself, 
you know, in a split second, what do I do here? Because I know a lot of the people in this audience and they know my name is not Lindsay, uh, but this is Matt Damon. So my name could be Lindsay. So I'm either going to change it and this is just going to be the night <laughs> or I'm going to say something and just call them out. And so I said, well, there's always someone who loves to be a junior auctioneer. And unfortunately, tonight, we only have one lot to sell. So thank you so much for your services, which are obviously not needed. And also, my name is actually Lydia. And he was so, you know, he put his hand and he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was just such a perfect moment. And then the best part, and I knew that he was funny because I had seen him in interviews before. When he got on stage for the paddle raise, which was about 10 minutes later, he got on stage with a microphone and he said, Hey, Lindsay, it's, uh, you know, Matt. And he turns to the crowd and he's like, this is just something we do. You know, Lindsay and I was like, we do not do, I've never even met you. There was a struggling actor named Mike Diamond who was coming on stage tonight. And I guess that's you. And so he laughed and then we just got into an all out. I treated him basically like I treat a brother. And we just sort of made fun of each other the whole time, even though we literally met for two seconds. Um, And that was my cocktail party conversation starter for almost 10 years of my life. And so it had to go in the book, of course. (laughs) The story of that was really just about doesn't matter who anyone is. At the end of the day, they're just exactly. a person. And so we put people in pedestals and we think that they're holier than thou or better than thou. And in, at the end of the day, we're all the same. So treat people the same and you'll get back what you want, which is an authentic connection. Absolutely. Own your power, own your voice, become an effective communicator and have your own gavel strike, whatever that could be. Just get a gavel, everyone. I mean, will it ever be a bad idea to walk into a meeting with a gavel? Yes. But you know what? No one will ever forget you. <laughs> I'm taking notes. Yes. Getting a gavel. <laughs> oh, no. Lisa's like, oh, no, <laughs> our next management team meeting. Trisha's going to roll up with a gavel. Yes, yes. I love the gavel. In honor of you, Lindsay. No, yes. Lydia. <laughs> like, In your you honor. Too. You too, Tony. Whatever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Well, Lydia, this has become more of a joy than I thought it was going to be. Um, you are just fantastic. And uh, thank you for graciously agreeing to join us today and just share all your wisdom. And as you said before, please, everybody go out there and buy Lydia's book. It is phenomenal. Um, again, I have read it. And I recommend it to so many people. I, I mentor and I've given it to all my mentees. So it's phenomenal. And uh, continue to do the great work and um, enjoy this next auction season. Yes. Thank you so much. Oh, ladies, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Man, Lydia was such a joy. I knew she was going to be awesome, but she was more awesome. (laughs) She was so good. One of my favorites. Honestly. Yes. So good. Mine too. I know. And that's why I had to tell my daughter. I was like, I'm totally not going to fangirl, but I wanted to fangirl. Well, she would tell you, you should have and not well. And she's just, she just puts one boot on at a time. So I know. Yes. Yeah. So just like Lindsay, right? Like Lindsay Lydia. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) No, but she did have so many good nuggets. What was your one thing that you think you'll take away from today? Yeah. I mean, aside from experimenting with emojis and maybe buying a gavel... Yes. I really, yeah, I really connected with her messaging around, especially as a woman, owning your voice and owning your power and really just being confident in who you are and and letting the world see that and kind of putting those fears and aside and just powering through moments when you just need to be out there and be yourself. So that was my, you know, my favorite part of the conversation. How about you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was just a good reminder. So many people are fearful of communicating, right? You know, and that's ultimately what her, what she can, you know, um, started to talk about that gavel strike is to mm-hmm. kind of ease her nerves. And I think that that's just such a good reminder for folks that communication is really the key to everything, right? And especially as you are going into an environment where you're having to sell something, you have to be believable, you have to be a really good communicator. And so I think that that is really one of the things that I took away is like, know who you are, and sell from who you are. Because if you're trying to sell from a position or a person that you are not, no one's going to believe it and no one's going to want it. So, yes. Well, and as the numbers girl, let's be honest, I love how she talked about separating emotion from money. Yes. Totally. Especially yeah. as women mm-hmm. and removing the reluctance to ask for what you think you're worth. So, yes. All the emoji power hands and <laughs> raising for and that the one dancers. Too. Yes. Yeah, all the emojis think- for that one. I think it's hard. Um, you know, in the book, she goes into, um, and I can think of two examples right off the top of my head, where she went in fighting for what she thought she deserved. And and here's the catcher, though. Like, she was okay if she had to walk away if she didn't get what she wanted. Yeah. And that is really, really hard. Yep. I don't think anybody out there is going to be like, sure, that just comes easy. Like, that is hard yeah. to do. That is like, you're going to talk to your boss. She talked about the 1% to say, hey, I actually think I should make more money. I got another offer from another company, and I know that I can make more. You know, you either match it or I walk. Yeah. But that means you have to walk. You have to be able to do the walking <laughs> part. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think the courage around talking about dollars and being okay with walking if you don't get mm-hmm. with what, what you want. That's something I'm still learning today is I'm good at talking of removing the emotion from numbers, but it's not 100%. Yeah. You know, there, there's still yeah. 10% left in there, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> where you get a little nervous, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to, you know, uh, I mean, the housing market right now is crazy, right? How many people are struggling with just, um, they know they shouldn't overpay for a house, but they've got five other people who they're bidding against and their yeah. emotion starts to come with it. And so before yeah. they know it, they turn around, they paid too much for a house because the emotion was there. And so I think that's a good key. Yeah. Well, awesome. All right, guys, are you ready for the download so you can take your one next step? Well, this week's download is an excerpt from Lydia Finette's book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. Yes, so text the phrase one next step to 31996 or visit onenextsteppodcast.com and you'll get access to today's resource to help you keep moving forward. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next week for another episode of The One Next Step. Start by making today count. Check out next week's episode when we'll have Michael Taggart, the COO of Envoy Media Group, He's going to talk to us about how leaders can get a better grasp on all marketing channels, both online and offline, to help them achieve the best results possible. Here's a sneak peek into our conversation with Michael. I think about sticky marketing strategy. The thought that comes up for me is like you're living rent-free in someone's mind, right? You've planted a seed. So to do that, you've got to speak directly to a problem that the person is having and how your solution is there for it. Thanks for listening to One Next Step. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Then join us next time for more practical business tips and tools to help you get more done, grow your business, and lead your team with confidence. For more episodes, show notes, and helpful resources, visit onenextsteppodcast.com.